how I explain it is we have the freedom of Article One of the Outer Space Treaty that says the exploration and use of outer space shall be the promise of all humankind. And balanced against that is Article Two of the Outer Space Treaty that says the non-appropriation of resources and the appropriation of resources through claims of sovereignty by means of use or by any other means is prohibited. And you put those two together, you balance Article One and Article Two. Does that mean you can mine asteroids? I believe it does. More nuanced, if you put those two together, Article 1 and Article 2, does it give a clear indication of what your rights are in outer space? Does it say, yes, you can go and use those resources? Or is it a vague indication? Is it too vague to derive rights from the marrying of Article 1 and Article 2? Time for another episode of the Cold Star Project, the podcast about small sat manufacturing and space. And today, super excited to have Christopher Johnson, who is a space lawyer on. We're going to have a few space lawyers on to talk about different uh, aspects about the ethereal world of, uh, of this space law topic. It's, um, there's really a lot going on. I did quite a bit of research this week and found out a lot. And uh, I, I know what I don't know now. And so I'm really glad to have you on, Christopher. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Today, you are a space law advisor at the Secure World Foundation, which is an NGO. And you're also an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. Uh, so yeah, some, right. some very good chops there. So let me jump into some questions here about space law, because for most of uh, my listeners, this is going to be a new topic. And they're going to be like, well, isn't it a lot like salvage law in a maritime setting? That's probably the first thing that they'll latch on to. And yet, as I found out doing my research, there's many topics under these, uh, uh, this umbrella, and a lot of them are new. And I find from what I've seen, the, it's not very clear and the world's sort of groping towards solutions and nations and, and these folks don't always cooperate. So I'm curious from your perspective, what do you believe is the most important thing for the public to know about space law right now? Okay. Um, so, well, first the, uh, you know, analogy between international space law and other areas of international law, um, Maybe this will hopefully this will make sense to people beyond um, people who've been to law school. But uh, international space law, uh, and by that I mean the five United Nations treaties, um, is a special subsystem of international law. So the bedrock of international law is the UN Charter, mm -hmm. um, and then you know which which um, has like you know the the bedrock of rights and obligations between states. And then we have a huge body of general international law on the relations between states. And then we have, I would call special little subsystems of international law that govern particular activities. So we have maritime law and the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. We have the Antarctic Treaty System, which deals with how states approach the Antarctic. We have uh, international civil aviation, the Chicago Convention. Um, which deals with international civil aviation and the, the fact that um, states are sovereign over their airspace, but they have uh, uh, agreed to allow other state aircraft to enter into and land and pick up passengers and drop off passengers into their, in, in their territory. Uh, so that's international air law. Uh, and then we also have, um, you know, all these other subsystems of international law. There's diplomatic and consular relations law, how embassies can exist uh, in, in other area, in, you know, uh, in other territories. Um, we have World Trade Organization law, WTO law, 
um, international trade law. And then we, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And the uh, United Nations um, Office of Legal Counsel has a kind of a, a, uh, an index of all these other areas and special subsets of international law. And one of those is space law. So this, the bedrock of space law is the 1967 uh, uh, Outer Space Treaty and then a few subsequent treaties that, that kind of expand uh, particular provisions of the Outer Space Treaty. Um, and well, I'll briefly say that there's the 1968 Astronaut Rescue and Return Agreement, the 1972 Liability Convention, the 1975 Registration Convention, and the 1979 Moon Agreement. So there's the Outer Space Treaty and then a few treaties that mm -hmm. expand some of the provisions of the Outer Space Treaty, expand Article 5, Article 6, and 7. Um, and that's 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 the the basis of international space law. There's also the um, separate but overlapping is the regime for the use of frequencies and the use of the geostationary orbit, which is the International Telecommunications Union. Uh, that's who administers it, and that's under the International Telecommunications Union uh, Convention and Constitution. So that's a that's a, a that is international space law, but but it deals more with um, frequencies and orbits. And then beyond that, we have the national space legislation of various states, mm -hmm. uh, which is actually quite, uh, you know, uh, U.S. space law goes back to the, the establishment of, of NASA in 1958. And then, you know, there's the, what the FAA, FAA particular regulation regulating commercial space, uh, what the FCC does in regulating commercial space. So there's space law that exists on the international level, which is how states agree that they will conduct their activities. So international law is uh, between states. And then we have the national space law, which is how um, states uh, uh, govern their national activities and also kind of flow down their rights and obligations under uh, their, ob uh, their obligations under international space law. I think to your second question is what is the what would I like the the general public to really know about space activities or uh, about space law? I think that from my perspective, the most important thing is that um, it's Article Six of the Outer Space Treaty that says that essentially states are internationally responsible for all of their national activities in space, and that phrase "national activities" includes the activities of private entities. So states are responsible. The U.S. government, for example, is responsible for what NASA does in terms of um, they're responsible to other governments and they're responsible for making sure that NASA agrees by international space law. But national activities also means private activities in space. The SpaceX, Boeing, uh, Blue Origin, you know, um, NanoRacks, Made in Space, et cetera, et cetera. If uh, to the extent that those private activities are national activities, the, the U.S. government is responsible for them. And uh, responsibility is to ensure their compliance with international space law. So the U.S. government is responsible for making sure that private activities in space comply with international law. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really that Article 6 thing. And this is, I think I want to I want to stress that because it is different from other areas of international law. If um, if a, a company does something, usually, say an American company does something, usually the U.S. government is not responsible for their, their uh, any infringements of international law. 
This is different in outer space because of Article 6, and it has that attribution clause that states are internationally responsible for all their national activities, whether non-governmental or non-governmental. And then it has this further obligation that states must authorize and supervise and ensure continuing compliance with international law. So states are under an obligation to perform an act, which is authorization, supervision, and continuing compliance. That's the one thing that, that um, because it is so different from other areas of international law, and because it is, um, yeah, because we're dealing with space, um, that I think that that's the most important thing to to stress to the to the general public or the general space public. Beyond that, there's a lot of you know very very interesting and useful um, and relevant obligations and rights in space law. But I would say it's it's really Article Six. Okay, and that that really is different. That uh, that the government is responsible for the actions of its private citizens and and corporations. So I was reading a bit that there can be cases now uh, where the national laws of different countries may apply. Like if you have an American who works for SpaceX and goes to Australia and participates in a launch there, that they may be under the Australian code. So that, that it starts to get a little more complicated. And I certainly don't know what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, yeah, it's, you're right that it quickly gets, it quickly gets uh, complex, potentially complex, because Again, it's national activities. So if a company that has American citizens uh, working for the company and the company is incorporated in America and they have offices in America, but they have another office in another country and that other office in, in another country and the company itself contracts with a foreign government or a foreign um, launch provider, a foreign space, uh, space company, we... Under the international law, you would look at it and say, is this a national activity of the U.S. government that the U.S. government would be responsible for? Because at least one government should be responsible for these national activities in space. So they, so the kind of the hooks are, um, they, they mean it to be a little bit more um, clingy uh, uh, and make national governments be a little bit responsible for it and in a way that um you know we don't want um private private uh, actors to you know elude or uh, you know get away from um what the obligations of states are okay because that yeah it does lead to the question how do you get enforcement of of a judgment i mean do, does this go to uh, an international court and get decided there, and then there's some some demand that's made for restitution. How does that work? I mean, of course, it depends on the situation, but in general, there would be uh, international measures that could be taken, including recourse to a tribunal, hmm. but there could be other measures that are taken, um, and there's national um, national consequences. So that gives everything from you know, uh, a regulatory authority imposing some type of okay. fine on that company or mm -hmm. maybe not letting them get frequencies again or not getting launch license, et cetera. So every, every avenue that a state could take um, nationally and internationally to make sure that, that um, you know, there's, there's some types of consequences for any 
any non-observance uh, non or violation of international law. I know okay. that sounds really lawyerly. But. <laughs> no. Well, to me, it's okay. I'm curious, though. I mean, I, I'm originally Canadian from the West Coast, and so uh, under NAFTA, mm. which is a trade organization thing or trade agreement thing, there's a thing called the softwood lumber dispute where uh, the United States pretty much said, look, we don't, we don't want this stuff. Uh, and we want to maintain prices at this low level and Canada sued and like there's nothing really that Canada can do about it. Right. So I'm wondering in space law, is there a condition like that where, OK, maybe you got the judgment against you, but there's no way of actually enforcing that. I mean, there may be. Um, I mean, don't uh, just because something happens in space doesn't mean yeah. that uh, there could not be enforcement of it. Uh, it's true that we can't go and seize a, a spacecraft and impound it, but people are on Earth, uh, and you know they have assets on Earth. Companies have assets on Earth. Um, I mean, the the scenario you're talking about seems like it kind of may trigger some world trade or though some WTO law. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, something like that. There's probably WTO law involved, but also some natural resources law about lumber mm -hmm. and maybe some environmental law. Who knows? Right. Yeah. And I don't want to get you off topic. It's just something that yeah, struck yeah. me where this weird <laughs> situation came up and there was nothing that Canadians could do to get this. Well, I'll so. say what what would be you know interesting from that is to get a little bit deeper into it. I would if people are interested in how these things work, I would say take a look at Article 8 of the Outer Space Treaty talking about jurisdiction and states retain the right to exercise jurisdiction, which is the which is a state power to make laws, to settle disputes, and to enforce laws. That's what jurisdiction is, to make laws, settle disputes, and enforce laws. They have that right to exercise jurisdictional powers into space. Hmm. And that's, you know, beyond their territory. And so hmm. we call that extraterritorial jurisdiction. And they have that over the uh, space uh, objects itself, the space object, hmm. and over personnel either in space or conducting space activities. Um, so, you know, for the lawyers, that's uh, in personam and in REM jurisdiction, and I would say quasi in REM as well over the, the activity itself. And that's because space is an area outside of national sovereignty, hmm. outside of um, the state's territory, and not subject to sovereignty under Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty, yet it is a place where states can exercise their their jurisdictional powers in an extraterritorial sense. Um, and that would be the, the link that they can, um, you know, over the people, over the, the space object itself. And that's how, they, that's how they can have a say over what happens in space. Okay, so I better check out Article 8 there. All right, well, let's move into weaponization of space. It's increasingly become weaponized. Ah, right. and, and we're moving beyond threats and capabilities. Um, to the fact of having a weapons and defense systems in orbit. Uh, the United States government is looking at a dual layer missile defense shield uh, at different height levels because different nation states that might become our enemies uh, can launch at, at two different heights. And so they need to be able to take them out, detect them and, and find them in that. And this mm. could be a reality in, in a few years and it's very expensive and Congress is like scratching its head. And you, you probably know this, my listeners, mm, some of them do, some of them don't. So what 
you talk about is something called space situational awareness a lot. And I'm curious about how you make that, what that is and how you make that into a conflict avoidance tool. Um, a lot to discuss here. Mm -hmm. I think that um, first, space has always been in a sense militarized in the sense that you know militaries are um important users of space and rely on space militaries mm -hmm. rely on space for for the space domain and for their ground operations mm -hmm. and um yet at the same time there are i would say certain prohibitions on the exercise of military activities in space um, first is the 1963 test ban treaty that deals with the, the prohibition on nuclear explosions, tests of nuclear explosions in space. Then we have Article 4 of the Outer Space Treaty that prohibits uh, weapons, uh, nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction in space. Uh, the second paragraph of, our, of the Outer Space Treaty, Article 4, says that the moon shall be used exclusively for peaceful purposes. So when we have these guide rails, these guideposts of what is clearly prohibited in space in a military sense um, that that still allows for I would say significant military activities in space and the idea that there could be weaponization of space um, I mean you uh, you know as a, a preliminary preliminary point many people will will uh, assert that um, space space assets spacecraft are inherently dual use um, and you can't really define a space weapon because mm -hmm. essentially something which is a spacecraft that you can maneuver uh, could you could use it to hit another space object and in that sense it would be a space weapon so I, I think that that's that is an issue um, I don't think it's a, it, I don't think it's a showstopper in terms of discussing weaponization of space um, or um, you know security aspects of space or uh, deterrence or arms control measures that we can have in space um, and and then from that I think that oh, oh well uh, how does that inform your question or yeah you talked a little bit about weaponization of space uh, from what's what's happening in that sort of context um, I know it's you can't hide things in space but you can try and disguise things to make them look like something else and then surprise it's actually this mm. but this phrase could be true um, yeah. space situational awareness what does that mean from your perspective well um and i encourage you to talk to some of the the technical experts and uh, what mm -hmm. they call astrodynamicists and ssa experts um and uh, you know from my perspective which is not a scientific or engineering perspective it says that we have some general idea we have some notions of what actually is in space and where it is and what orbit it is in and where it's headed. And those things are not, um, not necessarily objective reality. They're merely predictions. Uh, it's like the difference between being at a train station and actually seeing what trains are coming in and, and, you know, seeing who's on those trains versus having, the timetable of what when trains are are supposed to arrive and when they're supposed to depart there's a there's a difference um how would you put that in philosophical terms the map is not the menu i think is, mm -hmm. is how you if you're going to get very philosophical about it um so we have models for what is supposed to be in space 
and predictions, and those predictions can be refined through observations, um, whether that is a company like Leo Labs or whether it's, um, you know, uh, U.S. Stratcom, um, looking to, to, to verify if they're, how accurate their predictions are. And those predictions only go down to a certain level of accuracy. Once you get into the smaller things, the size of a phone, uh, it's, it's very difficult to verify what those things are. Um, I know that there is uh, something coming online called the space fence, which will refine our ability to sense objects in space. Um, and therefore, it will increase the number of tracked objects, I think, by a great amount. And I'm not the expert on this, uh, but I, this is how I think about it from the policy and law perspective, is that this is all, for everything else we do in space, the foundation is SSA. It is awareness of space situational awareness of where things are and where they're headed. And then from there, then, only then, can you start to have discussions about space traffic management, about how polluted particular orbits are, mm -hmm. Um, and how how busy these particular orbits are, and and then from there about rights and obligations, and good stewardship of the environment, and um, even like issues of attribution, of um, should should damage result should collisions and conjunctions result. Okay, and I've had guests on before, and I will have uh, further uh, trying to get Marie Bajaw on. Uh, hmm. Who knows all about collision detection and prevention yeah. and you, it is, yeah, not, it is not as yeah, yeah. easy as the the public thinks oh you know whatever norad has morphed into they they have all that stuff don't they you know no uh the the accuracy is not that great of uh, of, of detecting these objects okay yeah definitely yeah yeah <laughs> Hey, this is Jason Kanigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory compliance and gosh the end customer who would have thought about that right so you can sign up for this if you go to coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring the mission we're on then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com MSB and join us on the mission to make space boring. Now back to the interview. So you uh, organize, host, and, and run workshops on developing international cooperation for space activities. I would like to hear what that looks like. How does that work? Who do you invite, and, and how does that get carried out? Well, it, I'll tell you this. It's a lot of fun because you get people from a whole bunch of different areas of expertise. You have to start, I think, I mean, this is how I'm wired and disposed. You start with the, um, I would say, it's important to have the academics there who can discuss fundamentals, especially fundamentals of international law um, or, you know, policy issues. The, the, the people who can approach it from that, that, that academic abstract perspective. You also have, I would say, 
the operators themselves, maybe it's the commercial sector, maybe it's the scientists who can explain what actually is happening in the space domain and what they want to do and how they actually do things. So you can have an academic discuss how norms of behavior should work. And then you have somebody from the industry who says, well, this is how they work in practice. If a conjunction is going to happen, I have a list of people at the other company and I call them or we email them. This is how it works in practice. Um, you also have, I would say it's important to have um, policymakers and decision makers who can then act on what we've, we've discussed and see whether we have the right policy or framework for something or whether it needs to be modified or updated or amended or whether there, um, whether there is no normative framework whatsoever. And we do need some rules for this. Um, and it's important to have all stakeholders in some of these discussions, the scientists, the engineers, the principal investigators, but the commercial companies as well, also the regulators, and also, um, like I said, the academics, but also folks internationally, the folks who will take a look at, who will view situations from the framework of um, international law, you know, you get people from the UN, um, and then people who approach it from, I'm a commercial actor, this is what I want to do in outer space. Um, I was at a event on planetary defense a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, protecting the earth from near earth asteroids uh, and threats to the earth. And we had people there um, from the UN who, who could kind of say, well, if you were to discuss this at the United Nations Security Council, or if you were to discuss this in the General Assembly, here's some of the issues that would arise that I would predict would arise amongst member states. Um, and then you would have someone from academia saying, well, this is what matters for academia. And and um, and then from there, we kind of brainstorm on what we should do next, because as an NGO, and this is what I do as a space lawyer at an NGO, um, you know, we try and convene stakeholders and then develop ideas of ways we should push the conversation and progress forward. We go, well, is this something we should discuss at the UN or is this something that we should do amongst operators first? Come up with guidelines from there and then present it a little mm -hmm. bit further up the chain to national regulators and national regulators can, can come up with actual rules and then at that point, then approach it to the international level. Uh, so yeah, I, I use the context mm -hmm. of planetary defense, but this is also the discussion happening with um, use of space mineral resources, use of asteroids um, yeah, and, and space resources. Um, this is the Hague International Space Resources Governance Working Group, the Hague Group, that's developing these building blocks for how we should use space, act, uh, space resources. And the discussion is, is this a United Nations discussion first, or is this a discussion amongst companies that would like to mine asteroids, mm -hmm. or is this a discussion that should be between, uh, um, on the national level, you know, the State Department and FAA and Department of Commerce, coming up with rules for commercial actors because um, you do have you know some of these things you have one one time to do it mm -hmm. there's only one first time to to, to to choose to regulate and if you choose at the wrong at the wrong level uh, it could turn out badly and I've we've seen that um, uh, we've seen some of those discussions work out badly, maybe because not because of the substance of what they were seeking to regulate, but because of the process. I would say the moon agreement is a, mm -hmm. is a right. example of 
the wrong steps taken because it was taken at the international level, um, uh, perhaps at the wrong time. No one right. was thinking of mining the moon in 1979. And I think it, only India in accepted it or something out of all the member states. Um, so the moon agreement has, I believe, 18 member states, member states which are state parties to the moon agreement, but none of them are um, significant space capable mm. states. And uh, and it's and it's unlikely to see how the moon agreement actually fosters or engenders space like advanced space activity. Um, but I will say, you know, about space mineral resource use, this is a discussion that will be that has already started happening at the UN level and is going to continue in 2020 at the next meeting of the legal subcommittee of the Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. This this topic, this agenda item on um, uh, potential legal models for the um, uh, access, use, and utilization of space mineral resources. And they're going to have that discussion about, and a, and a polling amongst member states about whether we need a new international framework or national frameworks are the best way to go, or space law is permissive and rightly balanced at this point in time. Um, so yeah, with space resources, this is how I explain it is, we have the freedom of Article One of the Outer Space Treaty that says the exploration and use of outer space shall be the promise of all humankind. And balanced against that is Article Two of the Outer Space Treaty that says the um, uh, uh, non-appropriation of resources and the appropriation of resources through claims of sovereignty by means of use or by any other means is prohibited. And you put those two together, you balance Article One and Article Two. Does that mean you can mine asteroids? I believe it does. Um, or more nuanced, if you put those two together, Article 1 and Article 2, does it give a clear indication of what your rights are in outer space? Does it say, does it say yes, you can go and use those resources? Um, or is it a vague indication? Is it too vague to derive rights from the, the marrying of Article 1 and Article 2? And in such a case, and here we're getting into some real deep legal theory, the theory in international law, it's called the Lotus Principle. Mm. And if anyone wants to, to quickly jump ahead to understand uh, a deep theory of international law, read the Lotus case from 1927. And essentially it says that restrictions upon the sovereignty of states shall not be presumed. And therefore that which is not explicitly prohibited is therefore permitted. I'll say it again because it's a bit lo mm -hmm. difficult logic. That which is not explicitly prohibited is therefore permitted. So absence a prohibition in international law or international space law, states are free to do what they want. And therefore, because there's no prohibition on the accessing of space resources, states and therefore their non-governmental actors are free to go ahead and mine asteroids. This is the approach taken by the US and by Luxembourg. It seems to accord with my understanding of Article One and Article Two, um, but perhaps international law is not that clear. Perhaps we do need some type of normative signal that yes, indeed, we can use resources in space. Um, so this is really the discussion that has been in the background of space law for mm -hmm. the last couple decades but it's really starting to heat up in these last couple of years and it will get more intense starting in 2020. We'll see. Okay. That's 
the problem solving process you described really takes me back to my late 20s and early 30s. I was running committees of council in my municipality and you could you could solve the problem on different levels. You could wait for council to send you an inquiry. Tell us about this. What should we do? You could uh, go to staff and say, hey, we want you to come up with something on this. You could go to the community and create a group of, of community citizens and get information that way. And then have staff write a report based around those findings, which we did all the time, and send it up to council and tell them what you want. So there's different levels of, of applying this problem. So I'm gonna check out that mm. Lotus case, which you're yeah. using and, as a precedent. I, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's uh, an early um, mm -hmm. and fundamental case for students of international law, that through that, so much will be explained to you um, it's one you must know if you're going to mm -hmm. talk about international law. Uh, it's like one of those hallowed cases. I think that okay. the other thing, so when you get into, you know, what even what happens on the national level, is it is it an excuse or a justification for behavior to say, well, no one said I couldn't. Hmm. Therefore, oh, oh, no one said you couldn't. Therefore, go ahead. Um, in some cases, that seems to make logical common sense. No one said I couldn't do this. Therefore, because... I believe in freedom, I can go and do this activity. Um, I'm willing to entertain that argument. It certainly s seems sound. It's, and, and then the even more, I would say libertarian approach is the quote from Iran that says, the question is not who is going to let me, the question is who is going to stop me. Hmm. Um, which, is the, which is to say, I can do whatever I want until someone says I can't do it. And no one has said I can't do these things in space, and therefore, I'm allowed to go, do, and I'm going to go and do it. Um, and this gets also a little bit closer to um, what I talk about as kind of the Silicon Valley mantra: it is, it's better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. Um, these things certainly make sense if you are starting to boldly drive ahead. Um, but I don't know if that's the right framework. If these approaches are the right approaches to outer space, to where we have Article 6, where states are directly responsible for what their national mm. activities, mm -hmm. where we have Article 2, where um, appropriation is prohibited, where we have Article uh, uh, 7, where states are potentially liable for physical damage, and where we have issues about militarization and weaponization mm -hmm. and security concerns in space, where this is a domain that militaries see it as primarily a military domain. Given all those um, uh, issues and, and ideas that impact the space environment, do we really want to say, yeah, you can, if there's no red light of prohibition, go right ahead and do whatever you want in space. Um, <laughs> Maybe not, maybe not perfect, not a perfect answer. Right. I mean, it sounds good, but the potential for conflict is really high. I personally believe that private companies are going to go out there and mine asteroids, but now we're getting into using resources and other people might get upset about, um, is it, should you just get it because you got there first? There, yeah, I've seen some exactly. talk about paying royalties to developing countries by spacefaring nations because they're using up those resources. I, I don't know if I agree with that. Uh, and then there's a question of, you know, if NASA wants to go capture an asteroid, what does that mean? Because you've got that, that uh, grabbing of resources problem again. So, 
Okay, so you're saying it's a very touchy subject, and uh, before we leap out there and go do some of this asteroid mining thing, which is a big thing for me, that's that's a big uh, core mm -hmm. reason why I'm in this business. Um, maybe yeah. <laughs> maybe well, we I should mean, have some rules laid out here. Yeah, I'll say a little bit more on that. I mean, hmm. you know, I cannot envision a state passing a law that forbids its private citizens from using space resources. Hmm. Um, additionally. Um, any long-term space exploration or space development or space settlement requires the use of space resources. It, mm -hmm. it, it, we, if we are to have long-term presence on celestial bodies or in space, we have to use the resources that are there. It is illogical to the point of canceling the space activity if all the water that mm -hmm. astronauts drink has to come from Earth, all the air that they breathe has to come from Earth, all the fuel that they use has to come from Earth. This cancels the future of space exploration. Therefore, logic dictates, requires that we use resources in space. Um, additionally, uh, this is an uh, interesting person you might want to find. Martin Elvis from uh, Harvard Smithsonian has used Elfcross data uh, to identify first a few years ago these peaks of eternal light on the moon. Mm. Um, and I can talk about what that means. And then uh, I know he has another paper, paper coming out with uh, over 200 locations on the moon that are either, um, that are valuable and interesting, hmm. uh, either for the resources that are in those locations or for those locations themselves. Meaning hmm. either there's something in the regolith that is valuable uh, and rare on the moon or it's a cave or a hole on the moon or a, or a peak of eternal light and its location makes it valuable. Uh, and those 200 plus locations are places we want to get to where, where it makes sense to go to and station things. Um, and then I think the last thing is, you know, about this idea of what is it, for, are we free to do whatever we want in space? If we set the precedent that non-governmental actors can do whatever they want um, absent a prohibition because we want to develop and use space this will that precedent of permissive lotus principle permissiveness of there's no red light i can do whatever i want if you set that precedent in the resource question it therefore goes into and and seems to also apply to other activities in space including mm -hmm. military activities. Mm -hmm. So there's no, there's no prohibition that I can't interfere with your satellite. Therefore, I'm free to go and do it. <laughs> it's a bad, perhaps a bad precedent to set. <clears throat> and then maybe take me to court later for damages. <laughs> yeah. But it's not illegal. Oh, this is, I, I'm just visualizing a sort of 1800 scramble for Africa with mm, French yeah. and British soldiers staring each other down on some Fashoda moon crater. Uh, hmm. <laughs> the potential for this is is yeah pretty scary actually. Is, the more you and dig that into is ex it, that is yeah that is explicitly and precisely what they meant to pro uh, to forestall and prevent in the negotiation and drafting of Article Two, and even before mm -hmm. that in the 1963 Principles Declaration, uh, the Outer Space Treaty was drafted in a time of massive uh, decolonization where they did not want an another colonial land grab in the space domain. And we should um, respect that sentiment, that they did not want national rivalries and territorial rivalries extended into the space domain. So we're gonna have to balance that 
that uh, bad future of national rivalries, we have to balance that with the fact that I said before, future space development uh, hinges upon mm -hmm. and is predicated upon we have to use the resources there. If we want to have a better future in space, we must use those resources. How those how do those things meet and not conflict, but actually complement each other is yet to be determined. But this is why we need not the lawyers, but we need some space economists, um, uh, people who know everything from game theory to common pool resources and people that know how to talk about um, um, tragedy of the commons and mm -hmm. Eleanor Ostrom's principles about common pool resources to come up with some rules, some normative rules for governing resources in a sustainable way that serves current needs and also serves the needs of future generations. Okay, Christopher Johnson, how can people get a hold of you or find out more about the Secure World Foundation? Um, well, certainly follow me um, and the rest of the Secure World on, on the social media, on Twitter, on, um, on LinkedIn, and then we are at swfound.org, Secure World Foundation, swfound.org. And we do events, um, you know, in D.C., but elsewhere uh, in America and elsewhere around the world. We have events coming up on emerging governance challenges for space, how to create these norms for space, really talking about what I was talking about before about, you know, getting getting all the relevant stakeholders in the room and 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 having them share their their interest in space, um, but also their concerns. And once you get people in a room actually meeting face to face and discussing what they want to do in space, then they can come up with stuff. Um, you know, getting the astronomers to talk to the people that want to operate mega constellations in the same room with people that are regulators. Get those people in the same room and they realize, oh yeah, those people have legitimate um, interest in exploring space, just like me. So yeah, we have um, you know uh, um, events <clears throat> uh, with uh, with other possible stakeholders in the space domain, whether it is planetary defense or use of space resources or uh, weaponization, militarization, or, um, you know, satellite servicing. These are the things that Secure World does um, so that we can use space, like I said, sustainably, which is, you know, the development of space, but in a way that is safe and sustainable. Right. I love that idea of getting the different stakeholders in the same room. Yeah. Um, because it, for my audience, this doesn't happen as often as you'd think it would. Back in my municipal days, I would get nonprofits in the same room who, who knew each other, but never really met like this. And mm. to get them to sit down, what would happen is they would shift from thinking, oh, there's one pie and I need to get as big a slice of that resource pie as I can for my own organization. They would realize that, oh no, wait, I need this and you need that and you have this and we could use that together. And the pie would expand. They would get a bigger pie out of it. And ah, so they're, yeah, that's they're the key. huge that's results. The key. Yeah, huge yeah. Results. yeah. It's, it's really I, yeah, exciting. Telling them that it's, it is, it's, it's counterintuitive to, to mm -hmm. get people to agree to that, that wager. Oh, if we cooperate in the short term, our long-term benefits are actually increased. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, people, that's, you know, that's one of the fallacies that um, 
that people fall into is that I have to get everything immediately now. Right. And just for me, <laughs> my guest yeah. today has been yeah. Christopher Johnson, space law advisor at the secure world foundation. And he's also adjunct professor of law at Georgetown university law center. Thanks for being here. Perfect. Thank you. 